Amen. Thank you, worship team. It is good to praise the Lord and give thanks to Him. Thanks for leading us in that. We're in a teaching series right now uh, because of our Open Doors campaign. And this teaching series, we're taking a look at some of the values that we want to hold as a church. And so in the past couple years, the elders have gotten together and we've been looking closely at what are the values that we want to share as a community that is going to help shape who we are and who we want to become. And so the first two values Pastor Kevin looked at, and the first one was our message is Jesus. And secondly, uh, generosity is our privilege. And so this morning we're going to take a look at our third value together as a community that we want to help shape us, and that value is it's about us and our God. But don't mistake that. It's not that it's about us and nobody else or, or something like that. This is not an exclusive message. This is a message that it's not about me and my God. It's about us and our God. Does that make sense? It's not about me and my God. It's about us and our God. That's the distinction that we want to make. So please turn with me in First Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to camp out in that passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in your red pew Bible, it's 813, page 813. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31. Most of us here, many of us here, we don't lack for opportunity. We're running here and there. we got sports. We have volunteer opportunities. We're, we have church functions. We have family things. We have gatherings. We have events. And we're running around like crazy. We have no lack of involvement. We have tons of friends. We have friends on Facebook and Instagram, and we have friends at the hockey arena. We got friends uh, at the coffee shop. We're surrounded by people, and yet many of us know the feeling of what it what it's like to be in a crowd and feel alone. What is it like to feel like you're in a crowd? You could be sitting here this morning, surrounded by people, and yet you struggle with a deep loneliness. And usually, we're only we cover that up with media, we cover that up with music, we cover that up with movies, maybe you don't like the, the aloneness that you have when you're at home and so you're always running the TV. I meet with some people and they're always running radio or all the, they're always running some sort of media because they don't like the feeling of loneliness when everything is quiet and everything is shut down. Deep inside of us, many of us, we experience a sense of loneliness. And I believe as Christians, we've let our culture shape what relationships look like for us, instead of allowing the gospel to shape what our relationships should look like. And so we want to look at 1 Corinthians 12 this morning and allow, allow this passage to inform what our community should look like. So let's read that together, 1 Corinthians 12, and starting at verse 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts... But all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body's not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Did I skip? I, I re rewound a little bit. Uh, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they're all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat them with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with modesty, special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put this body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. For, for if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you, verse 27, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, and third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, all prophets, all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And now eagerly desire the greater gifts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this ancient text, we come to it with faith because we believe that you, the living word, Jesus, will speak to us in the pages of the written word. We believe that this is not a dead and dusty old letter. We believe that it's alive and it's active, that it's sharp. As we sung this morning, God, we don't hide anything from you, that, that our hearts are laid bare before you. And we want the word to dissect it. God, we, would you use the scalpel this morning to teach us again about what it means to, to be part of a family, of what it means to have relationships in this family that you're creating for us. And so, God, we submit to you this morning, and we come with open hearts wanting to learn in the name of Jesus and for his glory and gospel. Amen. Tarja Parson, a notable blogger, uh, came across a blog from a few years ago by her, and she, she talks about individualism, and specifically the North American type of individualism that's rugged, that that when you're a teenager, you're almost expected to leave home and travel across the country and study abroad and because you're an individual. And so she did that. She traveled across the country from Texas to New York City. She went to university, and she started realizing that all of that busyness, her drive for career, even, even though she met somebody that, she became, that became her partner in life, she felt this loneliness that she didn't realize was there until she started having children. So in this article, she says this. The article is titled, We're Not Meant to Do This Alone. American Individualism is Destroying Our Families. And so she says this. America's cultural glorification of individualism and freedom do not prepare women for the intense need for family after giving birth. We prepare our babies with the softest swaddling cloths, organic diapers, and the perfect nursery, but we're not encouraged to anticipate our own needs, especially that of simple connection with others. 
I equated my own crushing loneliness, my dependency on my husband and phone calls with my mother or any other, or other adult who listened kindly for that matter to be weakness. The false assumption that I could parent alone is not just mine, it's societal. And she goes on to say this, all I know that in the trenches of motherhood, I don't want to battle alone. And what a shock it was for me to discover that. My boys are now ages seven and four. My loneliness is both more manageable and more painful at the same time. The kids are in school. I stay active. I have lots of friends. But we're all spinning in different orbits, different carpools, different extracurriculars, different schools, different errands, endless driving, with no family because she moved across the country, with no family close by and only hard-fought playdates or drinks together, she says this, the isolation is profound. I miss my friends who are right next door or down the street. And with each passing year, I miss my family. She says this, the missing limb whose phantom pain only increases. Isn't that interesting? She finishes the article by saying this, I don't need to study the research on how a lack of community affects the individual. I am that research. Now, if only I could figure out how to turn this rocket around. In our culture, our schedules are incredibly full. It doesn't matter if you're a young adult or you're middle-aged or you're retired. I chat with lots of retired people who are like super busy. Their lives are full. You think when you retire, you have lots of space in life. I think it only gets fuller. Is that right? Yeah. This passage in 1 Corinthians 12 comes in a section where, where Paul wants to describe, it's a whole section where Paul is describing the nature of the church. And this section particularly is how he sees that the church community should play out. He's defining what it looks like to have community. Some of us are so busy, we're not sure we have even the time for the relationships that we long for. We don't even know how to cure the loneliness in our own souls. The gospel transforms how we define and experience community. And the bad news this morning for us is that we can't turn the rocket around. But the good news is that we know somebody who can. And so Jesus and, and the good news of Jesus is what can turn this rocket around. It can heal the loneliness. It creates a community where people are actually experiencing relationships the way God created them to be. But the problem is, is oftentimes when we hear the Bible talk about community and Jesus' definition or Paul's interpretation of Jesus' definition of community, there's something inside of, of us that bristles a little bit. We're like, ooh, that's a, I like a little bit of that, but all of that is a little bit too crazy. It's a little too close for comfort. And so, so there's four things I see in this passage that I want to chat about to get beyond how it rubs us the wrong way. We need to be transformed by the gospel. And in this passage, I see four ways we need to be transformed. If we're going to become a, a people of open doors, of radical hospitality, we will need to see transformation here. We've said it many times in the evenings that we got together. Building a building is not going to make us into those people. We need the transformation of our hearts to become people who are hospitable. 
And so, firstly, the passage, uh, I, these four things, uh, we, we need to transform our individualism, we need to transform our insecurity, our intolerance, and ultimately our identity. So firstly, the gospel needs to transform our, individually, our individualism. It's a mouthful. The point is that it's not about me and my God, it's about us and our God. So take a look at verses 12 to 14 again. Paul says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, and this is the key, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Paul uses this powerful metaphor, not, not only here, of the body, but he uses it in many of his letters as well. And the body is a powerful metaphor because sometimes we think of church membership like a membership at Costco. If you don't want to be a member anymore, just like sometimes in churches, you just don't renew your membership. And you go to another big box store, and it's no big deal. Paul doesn't even have a frame of reference for that. Here Paul's talking about a member of a body. If, if, you, if you lose an arm, your arm dies. Your body knows it. Your body becomes actually disfigured and dismembered, and it doesn't work the way it was supposed to work. That's what Paul, Paul has no room. He has like no idea, no comprehension for our North American individualism when he's writing about the body of Christ. In a New York Times article from 2012, a few years ago, the author talks about how North American rugged individualism is, is actually a lie. This secular professor from University of Maryland, he says this, to be human is to be party to a confounding existential illusion. It's confusing, and it's a lie. That human individuals are independent agents. And what the author is saying is that as humans, we live into this lie that we can do it on our own. That we don't need help, that we don't need others. And it's a fallacy. It's an illusion. It's not real. He goes on to say this. There's no such thing as a discrete, which means individual or separate or distinct individual. There's no such thing as that. It's fiction. The boundaries of me are fluid and blurred. We're all profoundly linked in countless ways we can hardly perceive. See, what he's saying in this article is individualism is actually what separates us. It's, it's what keeps us apart from one another. It, it eats away at the fabric of community. In fact, he goes on to say that, that it produces great anxiety and depression. And eventually, so much separation that, that it produces violence. And this individualism, even though we know this, we kind of know that we need each other. We know in a general sense that we need community. Yet this spirit of individualism still creeps its head up in different ways. Like, how dare you t tell me how to parent? One time I was walking my littlest one down the street a few years ago. And she thought, uh, she thought I was walking so fast, and then she saw that my child tripped. And it must have been Ellery at the time. And Ellery has this crazy personality. She's always crazy, leading me, actually. And so she was trying to run, and I was trying to keep up with her, and she just tripped. But this lady saw that I was walking too fast as a dad and tripped. And so she says, you're walking too fast, and she scolded me. And in my, in my spirit, I said, how dare you? Tell me how to parent. You have no idea. And that's kind of 
How dare you tell me this is the spirit of individualism that often creeps up? How dare you tell me to talk to me about my drinking problem? How dare you tell me how to live my life? How dare you? That's individual. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. And that's where individualism sometimes creeps up. It's in many ways the original sin of the garden. It's like humanity in the Garden of Eden that said, uh, I don't need you. I don't need the other. And then in blaming each other and blaming the serpent, that individualism divide, it, it divided deeply. This is not like a general individualism against God. This is an individualism. This is, this is against each other. This is against creation. This is against, it's, it's deeply embedded. It's a rejection of interdependence, even more so dependence. Even secular philosophers like this guy understand that it's deceptive. And that it's not actually true in practice. We know that it's not true. Just like the blogger started finding out after having kids. And yet, Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, that serpent, he sold you a bill of goods. You can't, you can't become like God. You can't become individually self-sustaining. You, you can't run your own life. You can't call the shots. It's a lie. He sold you a bill of goods. And so Jesus says, I've come to restore family. I've come to restore relationships, real community. I've come to heal the fracture of a relationship and isolation. And so we need to let the gospel transform our individualism. But how does that happen? Firstly, there's this weird Christian word called repent. When I think of the word repent, I think of a guy on, in Vancouver, downtown Vancouver with a sandwich board that says repent or die or repent or go to hell. I think about repent, I think about weeping and gnashing of teeth that I'm so sorrowful for what I've done and, and just this endless penance that I have to create. And yet repent is a, a much more simple word than that. It means to change your mind. It means to change your mind and start believing what God says about you. And so this idea of faith, first of all, we need to change our mind. And, and so listen to this, because we've got to think in a countercultural way. Romans 12.2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance. First Peter, or, uh, sorry, Romans 12.5 says this. This is what we have to change our minds to. So in Christ, we though many form one body. See, here, here, here it is in another letter. Paul is big on this. And each member belongs to all the others. That is outrageous if you start thinking that through. We're okay in the context of marriage to belong to one another. That's crazy if my life belongs to all you folk. That gives me the shivers. <laughs> that means you do have the right to speak to me in love, in truth and love, about my parenting. That we actually do in community have the right to each other's lives. That's real community. That's craziness. But we've got to start changing our minds that, wait, I belong to these people, and these people belong to me. But secondly, changing your mind is often not good enough. And you know that. You've, talked, you've heard about the 18-inch journey. It's got to go from your head to your heart. But that journey from head to heart is actually a journey 
of faith. So faith in, in the Greek is pistis. It's an unfortunate word, I suppose. But, um, but it means faith and faithfulness. In all in one word. So it means believing and living it out. And so firstly, you've got to change your mind. Secondly, you need to live it out. And so, so not only you change your mind, our behavior has to change. And listen to this, Acts 2, 42 to 47. I think we can take a behavior change note from this. The early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Let it be true again, Lord. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Man, it didn't say they got a new smoke machine and then people were getting saved left and right. I'm not against smoke machines. But listen, if you want to see people come to know who Jesus is, it's about changing our minds about what it means to belong to community, and it means about changing our behavior about living that out. It's radical. So if we want to become a people of open doors, showing radical hospitality, firstly, we need to be transformed by the gospel in, in our individualism. We have to get over this. That's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. But we've got to make efforts to continue to press into community, to involve ourselves in relationships, and to invest in other people. So firstly, individualism. Secondly, we need to see the gospel transform our insecurities. If, if we actually get past our individualism, our rugged, I don't really need people, well, like, I'll serve you, but don't ever serve me. We need to get past our insecurities now. Take a look at that at 15 to 19. Now the foot should say, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, I'm not an eye. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. But if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. So if we get past our individualism, the next hurdle in our lives is to get over our insecurity, which as I chat with people personally, I, I'm just honest. I'm a really insecure person. I heard a comedian talk about, you know how you walk into, a, maybe you walk in the front of the church, but you walk into a party of friends, and, and you're thinking about, what are people thinking? What are, oh, like, I, I wore this tonight. Oh, no, that person wore the same shirt. Oh, shoot. And you're thinking about, what do people think of me? What are they looking at? And you know what he says? He laughs, and he says, nobody's thinking of you, because they're all thinking about themselves and what they wore. So you got to get over it. Get over yourself. I can't preach like Kevin Bain, so maybe I don't belong here. Maybe some of you think, I can't sing like Sarah Biega. She's not, is she here this morning? I can't sing like Sarah Biega. I'm calling her out. Maybe I don't belong here. I'm a raving introvert. I don't really get along with people. Maybe I don't belong here. And Paul's saying it's crazy. 
We need to get over our insecurities. As Christians, we need to hear a word from Paul this morning. God has a spot for you in this family. God has a spot for you in this family. This is not pastors we want you to be part of. This is, Paul says, God has placed you and has a purpose for you in this family. This is God's work. And you're incredibly important. And so my encouragement is don't, don't hesitate because of your insecurities. Don't sit back. Don't wait for invitations. If you've been a Christian for a long time, there would be an expectation that, that you jump in, you dive in. This is your family. You belong. You have a, don't wait for an invitation. This is your family. And so we need to allow the gospel to transform our insecurity. In a real practical way, I want to encourage you, those, those of you who've been Christians for a really long time, and I'm talking, some of you have been Christians for decades. Some of you have been Christians close to a century. If you've been Christians, the people who are laughing are the people who that's true of. If, you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I want to invite you this morning to take a young person out for coffee and invest in them. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them how their spiritual life is. Start doing it on a regular basis. Dive into relationship here. Get over our insecurities of, oh, maybe they see me as, as a senior citizen. They, maybe they see me as uh, uh, my opinion isn't worth something. Young people are, are hungry for older people to pour into them. I promise you it's the only reason I'm standing here today is that somebody older than me had the gumption to say, I believe in you, I want to pour into you. Where would I be? I have no idea. Might not be alive today, who knows. Invest. Get involved. Investment and involvement. Listen, if you struggle with insecurity this morning, some of that's identity, which we'll, we'll get to in a later point. But if you, if you struggle with insecurity this morning, uh, it probably means that your identity is not secure in who Christ has made you to be. Listen to this from 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. I just want to read this to you because you need to hear this as the gospel. But you are a chosen people. You're chosen. You didn't choose this. That's crazy. A royal priesthood. That means... That means you don't have to sit back and wait for somebody else to bring you to God. That means, in fact, if you're a Christian here this morning, your role in the world is to bring other people to God. Don't hesitate. Don't let your insecurities hold you back from that role. This is what God is telling you you are. A holy nation. Sometimes we let our sin, our life, the stuff in our life that hasn't been totally completed yet, we let that stuff hold us back. Well, I'm not good enough. Peter says, you're a holy nation. Jesus has made you holy. You're God's special possession. Maybe you've been abandoned in your life before. Maybe parents abandoned you. Maybe you're adopted. Maybe you grew up in foster care, and you've always had that sense of abandonment. God is saying, like, you're God's special possession. You're wanted. Don't let the insecurity of abandonment hold you back from Christian community. Hear what God says about you, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now 
You are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For us to become a people of open doors, a people of hospitality, we have to get over our own insecurities. Our insecurities of how our homes look, our insecurities about my driveway's not paved, where are people going to park? I have no idea. Our in, we have so many different insecurities. We have to allow Christ to inform who we are so that we can get past those insecurities and begin to open our doors. So thirdly, the gospel needs to transform our intolerance. That's a hot word these days. It's about race, but it's more than that. In Canada, I think it's less about race and it's more about gender issues these days or, or sexual preference. Look at verses 21 to 26 again. Nope, 20, yep, 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat them with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We have to allow the gospel to transform our intolerance. At my kids' school, they, they drill into the younger grades, you can't say you can't play. Has any parent heard that? You can't say you can't play. Like, I want our church to be like that. There should be nobody that we come across that should get excluded. We might meet people with a past that we have to be careful about how they navigate our community, but there should be nobody that we look at and say, you're, you don't belong, that you're not welcome here. You can't say you can't play. So, of course, racism has no part in our church. Of course, of course. But there are other, there are other like, minor intolerances so there are the big intolerances that some of us, I think most of us, have worked through. But there are some smaller intolerances that I see even the Christian culture, even right here in Niagara. Like a minor intolerance of, I don't like how the music is. Or I don't like that preacher. And oftentimes they're based on Sunday morning things. There's minor intolerances of, of how... Sunday morning looks, and then we get people who are transferring from one community to another. But here's the problem. If we allow our intolerances dictate how we belong to community, then people who are supposed to be invited in will never find that community because there's no solid connection. There's no solid commitment. There's no covenanting to one another in this local community because we've let intolerances drive how we belong. We need to be committed. What people are looking for is real connection. If people find a group of people who are committed and covenanted together no matter what, even if the music is terrible that Sunday morning, that we're committed to each other no matter what, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for deeper connection. They'll overlook how badly we do things if they find real connection, if they find real community, if they find a people that are really loving one another. We had a couple at, at a previous church of ours, a couple 
who had moved from the big city, and I think they heard the message of the gospel, and they were excited about it because what they heard was an invitation to a family that was different than what they experienced before. And so they gave their lives to Christ, and we got to baptize them. And you know, you know what I think had happened is they fell away from the church because they found that Christians didn't live the way the Bible talked about community. It's kind of heartbreaking, to be honest with you. They found that Christians were so worried about how they do things on Sunday morning, and the rest of the week, they were wondering, where are, where are all the Christians? We got to change that about our intolerances. We got to commit to each other no matter what. If we really care for people deeply and provide meaningful connection and set our petty intolerances aside, people in our culture who long for deep relationship, they'll care less about Sunday morning because they've found real deep meaningful connection that's healing the loneliness we all feel deep inside through Jesus among us in our love for one another. And so, fourthly, the gospel needs to transform our identity. This is the big one. It's kind of the one that all the other ones are hinged on. Let's take a look at verses 27 to 31. He just comes out with an identity statement, so I bolded it for us. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, and second of all, prophets, and third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. In the past couple of years, there's this lady, I don't know if you've come across this story, um, her name is Rachel Dolzel, I think, how you say her last name. And she's been making headlines for about two years, but more recently, again, she's in the news. She was born white, blue eyes, blonde hair. And now she's identifying as an African-American and presenting as an African-American. So she tans really dark. She puts darkening skin on. She perms her hair and dyes it. It's created a firestorm it's quite, a, quite interesting culturally. In a culture that hails inclusivity and tolerance, nobody's tolerating her. Every side. There's white folks are saying, you're, you're like abandoning who you were made to be. And then there's uh, uh, black folks who are saying, you're a fraud and denying. Then she thought, I could find a home in, a tr in trans community, at least transgender. Or tra and they're denying her saying, no, you're choosing this. We didn't choose whether our gender, but you're choosing your race. She can't find a community. She is now living with her, her sons on food stamps because she can't find a job anywhere. Everybody's rejected her. Isn't that crazy? In a world that talks about inclusivity and identity, that it's up to you. You get to choose what your identity is. She's falling through the cracks. So I guess that's not really true. It's so interesting. Our culture says that identity comes from self-expression. But what we're seeing is that this only actually creates further fractures in society where there's more and more definitions. It actually doesn't bring people together. It actually drives smaller and smaller compartments of what it means to be who you are. There's now over 60 gender pronouns on Facebook. That doesn't, that's not inclusive. That's like, it starts defining who you are in these tiny little groups. 
It's fracturing community, in my opinion. Where does our identity come from? And so in this identity conversation that's so important in our culture today, Jesus comes and brings a new identity, an identity that's more important than all other ways we identify ourselves. It has to be the foundation. It's an identity, an identity that gives us all a common heritage. It's funny when you meet other Mennonites. I know not everybody's Mennonite here, but maybe if you've hung around long enough, you start realizing these Mennonites play this thing, the Mennonite game. Well, it's not only Mennonites who do that. If you're, uh, you, you, Italians play the Italian game. So, but Mennonites play the Mennonite game, and you probably it's because there's this common heritage. I just had a conversation the other day with somebody, and, and they were just talking about, oh, Unra, you must be, oh, the guy who did the school thing, and yeah, I am. A common heritage is actually incredibly powerful. But when our common heritage is in how we were born instead of in Christ, what we start inviting people to is something that's human construct. And again, we start creating fractures in culture. But if we start inviting people to the one thing that gives us all a common heritage, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised again to give us new life, to be adopted into this family, if we invite people to that, then everybody gets the same heritage. Everybody gets invited in. It's incredible. And so that's the new identity. Listen to Galatians 3, 26, 28. So in Christ Jesus, here's some identity phrases again. We need to believe these. You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That's identity. When I was a kid, we liked to clothe ourselves with, with Lacoste and Polo. And that was my identity. You know? <laughs> this is like, clothe yourself with Christ. That's how people see who you are. Those are markers. Those are identity markers, how we dress and what car we drive. And, and Paul, or Paul to the Galatians is saying, you're clothed in Christ. That's your identity marker. And that's what's going to draw you together. It's incredible. It's our new identity. And our unity, our togetherness, all comes because our identity is in Jesus Christ. Our, our, our identity is not our race. It's it's not our gender. It's, it's not our social status. Our identity, our value is because of Jesus. And so we see here, not only have you been get, given a new identity, you've been given a new purpose. That's part of that identity. And so some are apostles and prophets. You've been given a new role, even a part of this family. We have a new identity. We all fit in. Why? Not because I say so, because... God has placed you here. It's not the work even of the church. God is placing you. That's your identity. So, if we want to be a people of open doors, if we want to be a people of radical hospitality, we need to see our individualism transformed by the gospel. We, we have to see how the gospel is transforming, what's our no point number two, our insecurity get over those things that hold us back from community. And thirdly, our intolerances of people or of things. We have to get over those things. We have to let the gospel transform our identity. Why does it matter? Why does all of this matter? I want to say to you is because 
in Jesus Christ, those who were far have been brought near. That's why it matters. Those that were abandoned are adopted. That those that were lost are now found. That's why this stuff matters. When I was about nine years old, my family was at a trip. I'm not sure why. It must have been a big concert at an Ontario Place. Has anybody been to Ontario Place? I probably haven't been since then. There was thousands of people crushing, walking down this walk pathway to somewhere. And as a classic nine-year-old boy, I was probably distracted by something and watching something else happen. And when I looked up again, I couldn't see anybody that I recognized. Thousands of people taking in the smells and sounds. But as soon as I realized nobody's around, I can remember that sinking feeling in my gut. I was just a kid, nine-year-old kid. It's like, uh uh-oh, this is bad. My heart started racing, and my pace started getting faster, and my cheeks were hot, and I was trying to find frantically. And we have this family whistle that's brilliant. If you don't have a family whistle, make up a family whistle. It's the best thing ever. Dad, can you do it? It's like, yeah, it's amazing. So Ontario Place, Ontario Place, I hear the whistle. And I don't want to, it's a... And so I'm now frantically trying to follow the whistle. And the more I'm following the whistle, the fainter and fainter it's getting. And I can't hear it anymore. Lost. (laughs) It's lost. It's lost. My mom says, I asked her, how long do you think it was? She was like, long enough to take my breath away. Probably about 30 minutes. So as a nine-year-old kid, I thought, there's a... There's a booth, probably an information booth, that I passed. I'm going to go there. I'll find a staff member. I'll tell them what happened. And so I did. And right away, they got on the radio and radioed all the other staff members. Be on the lookout. There's probably people looking for this little boy. We have him at this booth. So I'm waiting there, and I'm just trying to control all my emotions, trying to be strong. And I see... Our friend Jack Bolt all of a sudden make a beeline with a quick pace towards me. And at that moment, why? Because I'd been found. I was lost. But I'd been found. I couldn't hold on my emotion anymore. Our individualistic culture says to that little boy, suck it up. You're on your own now. Be strong. Learn how to do it. Don't cry. That's what our culture says. The gospel says, your father is looking for you. You have a family. You belong to the family. And Jesus is is coming to find you. And he wants to reunite you with your family. So your father can dry your tears. And this is the good news, that those that are lost can be found. This is the good news, that if you're afraid, you're wandering in life, Jesus wants to find you, to bring you home, so you connect with a family. Why does all of this matter? That's why all of this matters. There are children of God who are lost and pretending that it's okay and trying to hold it together when... In reality, all of us, in the quietness of our own hearts, know that lostness and know the loneliness that comes from it. 
And so, people of God, we need to be the family of God that is adopting these people in. And so we need to, the family, it's a family where the lie of individualism is broken. It's, it's a family where your insecurities begin to melt away, where intolerance doesn't belong, where you receive a brand new identity that's rooted in Jesus and lived out in deep spiritual friendship. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. Lord, we want this word to pierce our hearts. God, we want to be the kind of church that Jesus is creating. God, you said that you're the one who places people, and so we long for that. God, would you be a God who places people here in our midst, folks who are lost, who are separated, their relationships are fractured, they long for something more. They don't know how to stop the rocket. They don't know how to turn this thing around. God, would you make us a people that are accepting, arms open wide. Would you make us a people where the love of Jesus can really be found, a type of people who are committed to one another no matter what, a type of people who live out your love, and it's your love, it's that we love one another with your love that the world will know that we're your disciples. So this morning, God, would you take us the next step? Would you transform our individualism? Would you melt away our insecurities? Would you transform the way that we don't tolerate certain types of people, certain types of things? Would you, would you heal those things in us? God, would you give us the identity that trumps every other identity, which is that in Jesus Christ, so that we can be a family who continues to welcome people home, because that's the kind of work that you're into. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to enter into our connection time. Parents, if you uh, have kids to pick up, we will invite you to bring them back here. There's some coffee in the back. I encourage you to connect with somebody maybe you haven't connected before. And uh, we'll come back and worship together in just a few moments.